0: Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Quarter videos and tabletop roleplaying aficionado, welcome to the Thursday edition of my weekly behind-the-scenes DM-only live stream, Crafting Icewind Dale, which I build, write, and prepare for our next session of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. If you are playing characters of all Robin Frey, Celeste Edmundo, or Thimbleweed, avert thine eyes, because this stream is not meant for you. But for the rest of you, welcome. Of course, there will be lots of spoilers. We stream our D&D sessions live on YouTube every Friday. Watch all of our D&D sessions and reviews here on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at RogueWanson and join our official Discord server with invite link in the description. Below. If you'd like to support the channel, please check out patreon.com slash For our campaign, we use Roll20.net and for streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. Almost made it through the intro without flubbing, despite me uh having that memorized and saying the same intro for quite a while now. We are uh have well we've entered technically year two of playing Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. We started back in April, uh I think maybe the last week of March of 2021. And uh, I think as we talked on Monday's stream, I I could see us easily going as long as we did for uh, the tomb campaign, which went just shy of two months and 87 sessions, I believe. And I could see as we're at 74 right now, I could see this easily lasting another 20 sessions. Um, Just because of the, I think, additional stuff that I've added and we overall have I think slightly shorter sessions than we did in Tomb. It's kind of hard because in Tomb we did um, like intermissions, we did kind of a, a break in between. So maybe you know maybe we average like two hours and forty-five minutes, but with like a ten-minute break in between. Whereas here we're averaging maybe two hours and twenty minutes. It's kind, it's kind of hard to tell. We're just we're also getting started later, so I think we're getting maybe a little bit less sessions, which um, also bumps it to taking a little bit uh, longer. I think we've also taken bigger uh, breaks in between. I know we took at least one four-week break. We ran um, Forge of Fury, which was really fun, and then we've taken some, you know, various usual holiday breaks. So, but I could see it definitely lasting another couple months. Even though we're in, we've been in the Endgame since entering Caves of Hunger at this point. There's no real side content. It's pretty much all um, getting through this dungeon and then getting to the Lost City, which is basically the finale. But that Lost City has a lot going on, and I'm actually expanding the hell to that Lost City, as I mentioned countless times before with uh, Dan Kahn's expanded uh, Towers of Magic bundle. And I have recently finished the conversion. Maybe it needs a few finishing touches, but it's basically done. Although I'm probably still going to actually just throw the maps on here myself because for the conversion um, uh, purposes, we can't actually use any of the official uh, artwork. So we've had to use um, stock art for all the tokens, whereas obviously with my stream here, I can just use all the stuff that's uh, already built into the compendium. So I don't know what's what would be quicker, I guess, having the maps already done with dynamic lighting would be slightly quicker, but they're not very big maps. There are a lot of them, though. It's eight different uh, towers, which we can talk a little bit about Etherin maybe outside of the towers, because that's unlike uh, Caves of Hunger, Etherin is is probably going to need a lot of... Uh, changes and updates uh, to make it work for my party and to lead to a satisfying conclusion. Um, And we're starting, and we're still basically ahead of the action here, although as I mentioned on Monday stream also, it sounds like the party is going to uh, pretty much skip doing the vampire layer in the upper right corner, which I'm totally fine with at this point, and skip doing the Remoraz layer in the very middle of the map, which I'm also okay with. We've already kind of experienced them, and they want to just say, like, let's get the hell out of here, so that's fine, given that they... I mean, at this point, they don't know that there is another path they can take. Uh, I mean, they, they they know there's another path they can take. What they don't know is where this path leads. And it turns out, this is actually the shortest path they can take. Uh, actually, that's not true. Technically, going through the Remorazes would be the shortest path they can take. But by avoiding the Remoraz's, uh they can take this off-ramp and experience the entire uh, right side of the map, which takes them through some, you know, pretty compelling, interesting rooms. And then that will lead them to... Uh, the exit, so given the fact that we've already been in here for four or five sessions and we're only as far as we are uh, I mean they've just now made it to room in fact, how many rooms have they actually done in this dungeon? This room has uh, uh forty technically rooms, and I use the term room as just an area that's been officially annotated as something happening here, even though there's like some caverns that have multiple or have the same annotation, for example, but I think if we count it up, we have done. All right, so we have one, two, three, four. Uh, Four, everybody has to do, basically, these first four rooms. I guess you could skip them with a little bit of the vampire spawn in there. Uh, Five with the tower, six with the first borehole in it, and the psychic haunting. Seven, empty room. Eight has the arcane uh, slab. Nine had the statue in it. 10 has the room of shadows. 11, technically a uh, psychic haunt there. 12 for the Dracarith, uh big fight and the loot there, uh, and then 13 is basically the room they're in now. So they've done 13 out of the 40 rooms in this dungeon, and we're five sessions in. So in that case, I'm kind of okay with them deciding. Okay, maybe we can try skipping some of the content, even though you know I did make a little bit of work. But this is why you don't want to zero in too much. I think you know when you do get ahead of the players, at least in these cases, I don't want to like meticulously focus on very specific things unless they're for sure stuff that the player is absolutely going to hit you know there are those important choke points otherwise i think it's okay to get broad strokes and make sure you know what's going on and then when you know the players are going to get there you have a very a much better idea the players are going to get there then you can do these more minute zeroing in and making sure everything is absolutely perfect and um you know well scripted and everything based on that and this is that kind of the only way i had i could do this dungeon because it was so freaking big and I just wasn't sure what we were going to see next. Pretty nice if they had some ways of, like, invisibilizing themselves, too. I know Thimbleweed can do it, but I don't think they have a normal invisibility spell they can do. Um, if somebody had, like, Pass Without Trace or something... It's funny, they've never really thought of doing kind of a stealthy approach other than sending their um, scout ahead first, which uh, could prove... Fairly useful here, except for when they get to the thing in the ice, um, it will detect his thoughts and it will try to do its thing on him. It'll be funny that if he makes the save, I won't really explain perhaps what's going on. Although maybe I I do like the idea of when it does its thing, opening the door briefly and letting them uh, seeing this thing in action and then closing it. So they're like, oh shit, what is that? And then maybe thinking that that's a really dangerous uh, thing to do. And especially if if it detects him while he's stealthing through it, they'll be like, oh shit. But you have a choice between going through that or going through the remorazes. So it's the the devil you know and the devil you're not quite sure of. In this case, everything expanded. towers. Then it mostly replaces contents. So you're not adding much. Yes, uh, yes, I see what you're saying about replacing content. It's definitely literally expanding the content. Though in most cases, there's a few like one of them I think had like a hag coven just randomly hanging in there because wizards can't not use. Uh, hags in some context, even though they're really random, um, but most of them are to where there's really not much going on there, and these expand it and make it so there's a, a good amount going on there. So I do think it's going to make it a little bit longer, um, but you're right, they would normally have to do all these you know areas in general, and it just adds I mean especially like one of them, like the ne- the necromancy tower. I guess it's a necromancy one. Um, as written in the book, it's nothing. It's rubble and you just have to like clear out like some crawling claws or something. I like, guess there's nothing really going on there versus in the tower from Expanded Towers. It's a full other like tower shrine with like a big role-playing scene and uh, possibly some combat and like a lot of shit going on in there. So that kind of stuff is going to make it a little bit longer, but in a good way for sure. Like I would use most of this stuff. Um, I was really thinking to jump ahead a little bit in my planning There's a great bit in the expanded towers where uh, the players have a chance of meeting several of the actual high, uh, you know, high necromancer, high enchanter, all the other various people. One of them, um, the one that's the most similar is probably the one that's been uh, where the one's been turned into a green slot and she's still a green slot, I think, in the expanded towers. But, you know, as a slot, she's kind of insane, I guess now, but you have a chance of um, having the, the necromancer actually possess a player character and then try to raise his own body because there's certain special enchantment rules on the tower of necromancy and his whole thing is he just wants to find his uh girlfriend who is the uh i believe it's the high enchantress and i was thinking how cool it would be because my idea was to have one of those um top wizards you know the big twist is that it was oral was one of them and then she happened to um make something, maybe she stole another scroll or did, so I haven't worked out the details of the but she was basically able to cast this very powerful spell that channeled the energy of the Mithalar into herself and made her ascend to having godlike powers, but in return, that's what actually crashed uh, Etherin. So she's responsible for all of that, but that's also where she drew her power from, and that's why she's very nervous and fearful about having the Mithalar power back up and figuring out what that means. But I would love for the fact that maybe if, the, if that High Necromancer, maybe the girlfriend was Oral, and that would give it a really interesting context for the players to maybe deal with Oral um, with an RP angle versus just a combat angle. or at least you do that as a way of like disarming her if they manage to actually work with him and maybe fight, figure out that twist. Um, it all requires certain things to fall into place to make that happen. And then that's one of the changes I'll have to make on top of adding the expanded towers of Etherin, is adding the fact that I want one of those um, high wizards to um, have been Uh, oral and and maybe it might be better if I change that to the transmuter because I feel like that would be more appropriate for transmutation I'm not sure Uh, some of them work better than others in terms of uh, I like the like the necromancer is already really well written and done Um, the vacation one um, you don't meet him but I think his his uh, tower reflects his like he's like a pompous like jock athlete I think that works really fun versus other ones that don't actually have much of a role to play because they're um, kind of written out of it, which the transmutation is one of them um enchantress actually does play a pretty big role she 's got the she 's actually in, uh, an an now or or controlled as an ublix uh which is an interesting angle. The other thing i 'll have to do with the um expanded towers uh and ether in general is the fact that my players are higher level, and that's something of uh, the main adjustments i've been having to make to this campaign, which has been a challenge for me as a designer, although I think it's been very rewarding. Um, and trying to use a lot of that tier 3 content that we really don't mess with very much and it's that's mainly the adjustments i've had to make is that the players instead of being level nine i think going into etherin i want to say they are instead level they will be level 13 going into etherin so that means i'll have to just up all of the challenges you know slightly and tweak some of the dcs and stuff and hopefully not have to add too much more work for myself Forgotten Realms lore nerds in shambles, though. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. um, It is my world, and that's the story I'm sticking to it. But, yeah, I'm ignoring the fact that she's, like, this long-term goddess and pantheon and everything. And thankfully, my players don't give a crap. They're also um, not well-versed in the lore. Anything outside of uh, what's going on in our previous campaign. So it's very much like the MCU versus the comic books, basically. Like, they're very – like, they know the – you know, the MCU. If that if you know our D and D campaigns were the MCU, like clearly they're based on an ongoing uh universe and yet they don't know the uh the wider story behind that ongoing universe. They just enjoy the ones that they've been present in. So uh, and and I am not somebody who um in the bad analogy with Marvel because I actually do know comics very well. Um but I, I don't know Forgotten Realms very well, the lore, other than what I've learned from basically all of the fifth edition uh campaign books, adventures, and some of the source material. So I'm I'm playing it very fast and loose, but man, what that just seems like such a cool story and a and a really satisfying way to tie in um like why the whole frostbane storyline ties into Etherin because otherwise it doesn't almost tie in at all. It just feels very, very weird. Rightly uneducated in FR lore. <laughs> you know, I actually I I'm writing my Dragonlance review right now, and that's part of my uh, introduction is how um not well versed I am. Although I, I had to give credit to myself and that I did play a lot of D&D video games, and I say did because it just hasn't been a lot of good recent ones lately, Um, other than Baldur's Gate 3, which I think is finally supposed to come out officially this year, Um, but those were all Sword Coast stuff, as far as I'm aware, it was, you know, Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 that I've played, and then Neverwinter Nights, all those expansions, Neverwinter Nights 2, so I did actually play all those games, so that's everything that I, and I played a few of the old-ass like gold box games in the 90s, but I was so young that I don't think I could recall anything other than it just felt like generic fantasy stuff to me. Um, I, I think it wasn't really until the, uh, that Black Isle era with *Never Nights* and Baldur's Gate where I was like a teenager that I really started paying attention to all that stuff and, and enjoying it, um, but that's basically the basis for all my D&D lore until we got to 5th edition and then I learned about some more stuff. Um, but I think it might be worth still going over Caves of Hunger stuff, even though I'm ready to get out of here, and I'm sure my players are too. I think, as I mentioned, we'll spend probably at least two more sessions here. Even if they make a beeline for it, we've got to deal with the thing in the ice, a possible spinning mimic here. I think I'm going to replace the mummy with a mask with just a regular um, blue-skinned mage-in who just looks like a weird like alien thing that the players are going to have no context for whatsoever, and I think that's interesting enough for them to break out. And then this figure will just silently make its way Um, basically down to Aetherin, and it won't be able to, um, it would understand Larose and Elvish, I guess. Um, I'm taking, I'm basically taking away its telepathy and saying it can't, um, communicate back, I think. Um, although it can use a suggestion spell, and it would definitely attack anybody who tried to, like, stop it from returning, um, back. The one thing I could do is have it Oh, it straight up says, understands the language of its creator, but can't speak, and then telepathy 30 feet. Maybe it could say something telepathic, like a recorded message. Like, this one, um, I, I don't know, Some in, in LaRose, and maybe that's worth doing, I'm not sure, but this one must return to its workplace or something, like a very robotic thing, and maybe that would be more interesting for the players to deal with, versus just having it be silent. Uh, but it would just, if they decide to break it out, it would come out and just make its way down... Uh, to h36 where we really need to start planning on what's going to happen here with the dryad Um, if i want to mention the drow i believe last time i did i can zoom back in um apply the new nothics from one of the expanded towers the tower of divination added new nothic stat blocks including the nothic stalker which is essentially a rogue and the nothic preeminent which is a um kind of an attack wizard with a permanent blink spell it seemed rather cool I think I'm going to keep that one waiting in the wings, though. Uh, I don't want to really tip my hand too much on that one. Maybe treat the Stalker as, like, a kind of a boss of these Nothics, But this is a really weird scene in H37 where the players are expected to, like, uh, roleplay with them for some
1: reason. Even though I believe Nothics later on are used as kind of the Shock Troop minions. I'm in Curse of Strahd and we plan to finish around level 18. Wow, that's impressive. Are you DMing or are you
0: playing? As I'm curious um how the dm managed to change that so much cuz i think that's a, as far as i know a similar one where you like enter the castle at like level 9 or something and it's you know very much a level 10 dungeon or something so that would be pretty epic to make that uh, those drastic of changes unless you're saying that we've added like this whole other campaign on top of it uh which would be pretty interesting um if you haven't already checked out my check out my recent review of the Doomed Forgotten Realms uh, Fall of Vecna because that is a legit tier three and four campaign. It's a sequel to uh, Rise of Vecna, which is the cool like what if you know all the five E campaigns ended in failure and uh, the world was forever changed and turns out Vecna was like the big bad behind everything and it pr- it provides a lot of cool uh, stuff to do. It's very much um, whips the players around all these fun moments and epic battles and stuff. It's kind of um, combat heavy, but it feels like the designers have a good um, Uh, grip on what players like in D, &D, which is you know just memorable moments larger than life characters cool ass battle scenes like you know it doesn't it 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 feels very like cinematically paced i think in in a good way and and fall of ecna looks like a very legitimate tier three and four campaign which we just do not get with uh, 5e material there's just no support for that so that's been pretty cool the noble scholars there's very few people be educated. I did play Icewind Dale 2 a while ago, and it was really fun having done Rise of the Frostmaiden. Uh, interesting. I have not played Icewind Dale 2. I did play Icewind Dale 1, and I actually, you might already know, I I live-streamed it um, here on the channel when, back when I was live-streaming uh, video games. Uh, I think that was one of the last ones I ended up doing. And I found it extremely difficult in the beginning, um, frustratingly so, horrifyingly frustratingly so. And then once I got over that initial difficulty curve, I think things clicked along a lot better for me. And I was able to enjoy it from there on out, I think. And I did complete it. Uh, certainly had its challenges, but yeah, once you get over that initial hump of just... I mean, they got it. Like, the first dungeon is like, hey, we're going to throw like a dozen orcs at you. And I'm like, I'm level two. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and it's it's fun to play those games where you make your own party, too. You do i'm I'm torn because obviously i love games where i have well-scripted party members you know and, and even doesn't have to be isometric stuff it can be you know like a, a a mass effect or something where you've got you know your cool party members and you love them and you just love hanging out with them but i also love that old school mentality of like hey you get to build your own you know D D party of players and really dig into the mechanics and the combat creation and and go from there and games like uh Pillars of Eternity and, and I think the Divinity series, they let you do both options. You you had some wonderful pre-designed characters you could play with, um, and they were awesome companions, but you could also just make your own party members. And if you wanted to, you could make your a, a total party of just your own uh, characters, which is uh, really fun. And at one point, I actually did a a second playthrough of, I think, the first Pillars game. Um, I didn't end up finishing it, I got like halfway through and played some of the DLC, but I made like the characters from our first D&D campaign, I had like Kalinar and uh, Kethra and Miri and all those folks, and it was it was cool, it was really fun being able to just make my own party and go from there, but not something I want to do for the first run through because they had a lot of great pre-written characters. The mage used use sign language, that's interesting, I don't know if, does D&D have rules for that? Is that what like, thieves, I always thought of Thieves' Can as being kind of a version of sign language, but... Not sure that was ever uh, mechanically explained about how characters can uh, use that. I did think about, obviously, using the shush thing as, as a way for them to cast a uh, suggestion, which is something they would probably try to do at first versus just outright attacking. I games that are error super hard at the start. that said they were D&D in general, then LOL. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking that was... Honestly, as a teenager, I bounced off hard of Baldur's Gate 1... Because of that difficulty and just how rough it is in the beginning. And I understood a lot of RPGs were like that at the time. And not realizing that was because D&D was like that at the time. um, That I found it so frustratingly um, just like, oh, I'm so weak. I just, I have to kill like rats and I get killed really easily. Like it just felt, you know, like the power fantasy just took too long to come online. And I suspect that's why a lot of people really liked... Baldur's Gate Two, obviously, it's got a fun story and fun campaigns. Everything else is really good about it, but you know what? It starts at fucking like level eight. You know, you're breaking out of this like high power dungeon um, of a prison of this wizard's tower at the start of that campaign, and so instantly you feel powerful and your whole far- your whole party has like a lot of cool power and things available, and it just it goes from there and it's really really cool. So, uh, I'm one thing I am glad is Five E fixed that in a lot of ways, right? Like, I think they might have gone a little bit too far with making characters um, just really powerful really quickly um, and, and baked in without having any magical equipment. That's always been a complaint of mine for 5e, but I do like the fact that you get, like, you know, your max hit points and your d6 hit die is the lowest. Like, just get over the fact that, like, you know, I want all the player characters to be better than a normal person automatically because you are the stars. Like, you know, you should be a little bit extraordinary in some way. And not just, you know, like a wet paper sack is going to, you know, like a rat murder you or something. That just feels all kinds of silly. So I'm glad they at least went that far into it. And I will say a lot of the, but even then a lot of the official campaigns, they don't really start until you get to like third level or even like Storm King's Thunder. It's like fifth level or something like even Wizards is like, yeah, fuck those low levels. Like we're just trying to get you out of there. Uh, as soon as possible. Level one especially just feels like such bullshit that I can easily skip it. I will say as a I keep teasing my Dragonlance review, which is coming, um, Dragonlance does a really fun thing with first level where they say, hey, you're just gonna do like these little solo ventures, like as as, as almost as character building for your characters in the first chapter, and then we're gonna get to the real campaign which starts at level two. I love that. That's an awesome opening and I think all DD campaigns should actually do that. So I'm really enjoying what they did with uh Shadow of the Dragon Queen's uh, intro for that. Love composing my own parties, miss that Solasta. Or miss that. Solasta lets you do it and it's 5e. Yes, Solasta is a great example of that. At the same time, I do think it would have been really cool had Solasta had the options like some of the bigger budget ones like Pillars of Attorney where they had, you know, basically pre-gen characters that were baked into the story. Although Solasta does an interesting thing that I rarely see where they actually said, you know, we're going to do voice acting and personalities and we're going to try to figure out what your character, what your custom characters are based on like the traits and things you've selected. It doesn't always work very well and unfortunately the acting is uh, not great in those games, if I may say, but it it's, it's a bold move for them to do. And I, I kind of respect the hell out of it that they were like, we want you to make your own characters, but we're still going to apply like the usual stuff that you would see in a game with pre-scripted, uh, with pre-generated characters that we've made, which is having them be, you know, full of personalities and voices and stuff, which was, which was pretty cool. But yeah, I, I enjoy, it. I love making my characters. I'm, I'm the kind of person that when I was playing Neverwinter nights, um and this was a precursor to me being a dnd uh designer if you will uh for my own games uh i would just make characters like crazy i would design characters and write their backstories and write different builds and just had a blast doing that it was i just thought that was so much fun even though only like you know a fourth of them ever actually went on any individual adventures although in the day man with never nice you could download countless modules and actually use a lot of those characters which was awesome they weren't all you know, big ass campaigns. They were more like fan or sized or even shorter. And some good discussions here. I'm not actually talking about my campaign, but I enjoy these I enjoy these chats. Um so yeah, the main thing I need to prep for, I feel like everything is done in Caves of Hunger except for the meeting with the Dryad. Because I just need to figure out what information she knows, what she's willing to share. And commiserate over with the fact that the Dryad stat block is kind of garbage this one again and yeah it does say that the Null vampire makes a final appearance i do have him waiting in the wings with a contingent of vampire spawn mainly as a way of saying hey you never dealt with this vampire and now he's realizing his food is going to go away so he is going to get bold enough to actually attack with full force or I could skip that entirely and just be like, eh, ah, fuck it, we've spent here long enough, it doesn't feel right to have the vampires attack you. I, I don't know, I could go either way, but I've got them waiting in the wings, maybe if the party decide, you know, they have a scene, they fight the Nothics, they decide to go, you know, hunker down for a long rest, maybe right before they do that long rest. Or I could be mean in it after the long rest, <laughs> uh, when they come out of the tiny hut, because they dared to long rest with the vampires still around, um, it attacks them with a full contingent of these vampires spawn and has time to uh, prepare for that. So I could, I could think about doing that as well, just, to, just to, to put a final note on that. Even though they won't permanently destroy it because vampires are a pain in the ass like that, right? When you kill them, they go in a mist form and they just uh, go back to their lair. You have to actually destroy them at their lair or, I guess, destroy the lair itself. And by lair, I mean like their coffin uh, to stop their regen. But I could skip it entirely. We'll see. Uh, let's see. Miracle, the trees are alive. we stick with frosty leaves. Branches bearing purple pears, which is the fun. Like, hey, you can get a little cantrip temporarily. A uh, low broken wall. This is actually... It is dynamic
1: lighting. Okay. That's gonna look... What does that look like for the players? Let's grab somebody. Uh, got... Grab the weed. What does that look like? I don't think the trees themselves have sight blockers, which is interesting, even though their trees usually block line of sight, but the walls do. Okay, that looks interesting. Broken up walls. Did we give the trees line of sight blocker? Or is that going to be too distracting? How big are these trees supposed to be? I saw magic trees. Are, it doesn't really say. Grove of pear trees. I mean, they look decently big. They're like 10 feet across. Like that would block some some line of sight
0: unfortunately it's really hard to do line of sight blocking in roll 20 because it's all or nothing you can't really create like a weird like filtered effect like you could with a real tree like you know you can kind of see behind it but there's kind of blocking a little bit you have to do these these stark you know black lines everywhere and it gets really ugly if you try to make little dashes i think so typically you'll see like x's or tiny circles in the middle to dictate like okay like literally the trunk would be a line of sight blocker and maybe some branches and whatnot but it might be okay, with just leaving the trees open because we've already got the walls there. Uh, let's see. Enchanted by Netheries, trees, arcanists endure high altitude and harsh weather. Now I've read this probably four times already. Magic enables the trees to thrive even in these icy caverns. as the grove's survival is a dryad named Hathowin, resides in the southernmost tree. If the dryad dies, the trees die. The isolation made Hathawin lonely, and the dryad hungers for conversation and companionship. I do like making her a little bit on edge for that, but. Um, that doesn't have to be revealed until the players maybe leave her and then I think it'd be cool if you even had it to where they were trying to like, okay, thanks, and she's like, Oh, you can't leave, you have to stay. And maybe she actually has some kind of cool plant powers that a normal dryad doesn't. You know, and turn that maybe into a fight. Especially if she initially tells them, like, oh, there's some dangerous stuff around and maybe, you know, points them to the Nothics so or the Nothics come in and just attack and she hides and then the players uh but and then she becomes a combatant later on if the players are you know, not figuring out a way to deal with her socially. Although clearly you would have to give her some extra powers because a Dryad Baseline is...
1: a CR1. Fruit trees, probably skinny trunks, not block- much blocking line. Right, good point, good point.
0: There is something called a Duskthorn dry. In fact, I think I used this in one of our
1: Patreon games. Uh, from Tomb of Beasts. Mountain Dryad from Tomb of Beasts 2. I think this one has, like, demon energy or something. I just searched Dryad to see if there were some other options, but I could just give her some other plant powers. I like how every female
0: monster that's not a hag has to be, like, sexy in some way, even though there's no reason for that. It's like it's a fucking tree Person,
1: <laughs> I guess it's a fae, technically, but that's humans for you.
0: <laughs> that's probably we could probably blame like maybe Greek mythology for that. I'm not sure what the
1: start of that was, other than humans just like sexy things. <laughs> Lights, druidcraft, charm, person in. Ent- I was thinking definitely entangle. Dark Skin, Counterspell, Dispel Magic, Fog
0: Cloud, Shillelagh, Suggestion, Wall of Thorns, that's good. Draw once per day, this is a CR 3 with a bunch of spells. The easiest thing to do would be to turn her trees into Awakened Trees, I think. I might actually just use this stat block straight up, it's just more interesting. Because it still has Magic Resistance, Speak with Beasts and Plants, Tree Stride. Basically just give her spell casting and over three times the hit points. Way better armor class. Yeah, this is a much better stat block. I didn't have to give her weapons or anything. I say we upgrade her to a Duskthorn Dryad. I like that. Welcome to the campaign, Duskthorn. Take a look at your spells. I just like the idea that she's um, willing to talk to the player. She's going to be very companionable. Probably forthcoming about information about Netheril and Etherin, although it doesn't really say. Tecalelia is present. Hathwin remains hidden in her tree until the Gnol Vampire leaves or is destroyed. Tecalelia has never seen the Dryad and is unaware of her presence. Interesting, so I guess he maybe never made it this far. If given the chance, Hathwin tries to engage the characters in conversation, speaking Elvish or Sylvan. He hopes to keep them in the grove for as long as possible. If the characters try to leave, Hathorin tries to charm one of them into staying and keeping her company. That'd be a cool way to start the fight, for sure. Maybe the players are... Maybe she grows increasingly aggressive, casts Charm Person, and then we can roll for initiative.
1: Depending
0: on how the players react to that. <laughs> uh, let see, the, dry- the Dryad does know the following information. Another in Netherese, magic binds the Dryad to the grove and keeps the trees alive. I, I assume this was like a garden... This says the grove of pear trees was enchanted by Netherese Arcanist to endure high altitude and harsh weather. All right. Now I've assumed that this city was flying around and then crashed in the cave and then the crash destroyed most of the population. Everybody was fucked and then a few survivors made it to the Caves of Hunger but they didn't try to like make this garden in the Caves of Hunger. I don't, and That seems insane to me. So I always figured we're seeing pieces of Etheran in Caves of Hunger because it literally crashed in here and got embedded here and it just happens that this ripped up section of this garden or whatever got, uh, or orchid, whatever you want to call it, uh, got separated from the city and was managed and parts of it managed to survive here. And it all, o- and it still survived
1: because of the dryad's magic, which was itself chanted by Netherese arcanists. So in
0: other words, wouldn't she know everything about, e- if she was literally living in Etherin? I mean, I guess her knowledge would be limited to the garden she was at. Is, the, is, there, a, is there a garden area in Etherin?
1: Is there more? I'm just trying to figure out how much she knows. I have to just go to the, the location. Location, one way. Causeway, Wizard Spires, the stadium.
0: Hour one. The prison, which I'm probably gonna skip because the whole doppelganger thing is weird. Literally giving them Orvex, which is the like person who knows everything. But hopefully they keep Villain alive this long and they've still got the villains with them, so I think between all those NPCs we're we should be good on NPCs. Oh yeah, catch up on the chat. Um uh, I'm playing the DM has upped a lot of stuff and introduced quite a bit of homebrew, imagine. Curse of Strahd fused with Castlevania. That sounds fucking awesome. I love it. I I love it. Castlevania, uh, you could probably mesh some of the games together i I'm mainly familiar with the um, the later Castlevania games, like the, uh, was it Soma Cruz? All, all the GBA, DS games, um, I played most of those and really enjoyed those, it was really fun. Talk about just straight up dungeon crawls. With <laughs> some cool story in there too. also played that recent one that was by uh, uh, Igarashi, what was it called? It was on Kickstarter, uh, blood stained. I think. I played that game, which was fun. Very, very hard at the end. Really got crazy with the difficulty at the end. But that was a really fun, like... They've done a lot of those, right? Like Kickstarter video games where it's like, hey, we're, you know, remember this series or game that you loved back in the day? Well, here's one of the designers or some of the designers and we're making a facsimile of that game. And some of them do really well and are really well done and others not so much. There's not really a precedent for whether those are all... Good or bad, I'm, I backed one that was supposed to be like I in uh, Chronicles, which I think is supposed to come out this year that I'm looking forward to. Man, I could design a fucking awesome D and D campaign based on Sweekitn too. Also, love these little levels. I do love these low levels where the players have to think first versus charging in to fight right at the start. Well, you have different players than I do. <laughs> Uh, I, I see where you're coming from too I, I, and that's partly why I, I do miss, and I w- I'm necessarily saying that that was the right thing that Wizards did where they where they try to skip through those, you know, fuck those old levels and let's try to get to like tier 2 because I don't think all D&D should be played at tier 2, I agree that 5e is probably best played at tier 2 given the amount of content we have and given where the power levels are between monsters and players that's probably the sweet spot but yeah, I would, I'd think tier 1 is definitely um, worth playing through and especially if you want to try to play maybe a, a horror or more grittier campaign that's it's exponentially more difficult to do that when the players start getting more powerful. So it's just automatically way better to play those at a lower level. I think early level five E is a pretty good balance of power and danger, just IMO. I I would argue tier two is is a little better balanced for that. But I could see, if, especially if you're wanting things to be more challenging for the players, then yeah, tier one. Reason why everything is sexy in D and D is so artists like me get commissions. <laughs> I mean nothing against it.
1: Like I I think um. I'm going to try to phrase this very carefully and and with some nuance.
0: I think when it comes to sexy stuff, I like seeing a variety. I think if every single female character looks the same body shape, uh, which I think a lot of anime suffers from, and a lot of JRPGs suffer from, that's way less interesting to me. What I really like to see, and again, it's mostly with... Uh, female body shapes is something that's more like uh, Overwatch. And I'm sure there's better examples out there, but Overwatch is very popular, where it has a multitude of shapes and sizes uh, for men and women. I don't actually know if there's any like trans characters in Overwatch or not. Um, and and I think that's a lot more interesting. And those characters can be sexier, or they can not be, uh, which is the same as as men. Like you can have sexy dudes or not sexy dudes and but, but men often can come in different shapes and sizes and monstrous forms that uh female facing body shapes often do not so I, I like to see it when when we do get that variety a lot. I know there was a complaint, for example, in the original tomb of beasts, and I think it's a legit complaint where like they have several um female villainous creatures. I'm trying to think of what the like archetypal would be like a uh like like a a a seductress type creature i guess like a succubus or something and that's like the only like they all look the same is is i think the problem like there's there's just no like there's a risulka and there's like a drowned maiden and there's just they're all the same kind of just sexy like bikini model creature who happens to be you know actually a killer of of people and that's i think that's a that is a uh legit complaint when they're just all the same like that and i think it helps having some other voices in the room that say well wait a minute can't we you know get create some more variety here with that like just j- even just the physical look of this of this creature i think is is worth having a discussion about but yeah otherwise i don't have that's i think that's my main complaint when it comes to it is like oh yeah the dry is always going to be this like just supermodel looking
1: sexy plant creature <laughs> My game, she's full-on bonkers. Save me from having to give
0: too much Aetherin info. Oh, this, we're talking about the Dryad specifically? Save me from having to give too much Aetherin info up, and she was super needy and desperate for one of the players to stay with her. I do want to kind of create that. Look up the Lizard Queen and Ghost of Saltmarsh. She is a red gown and is described as majestic and Slinter. Oh, boy.
1: <laughs>
0: and sometimes it just comes down to, like, horny game designers. Like, that is definitely part of it, and... You can tell when, like, a lot of the voices in the, you know, are in the room are men, and they're just making these like, of course, they're gonna be like, you know, sexy, what they perceive as a sexy women characters. I definitely think that's part of it, but I think uh, it also just gets boring when that's all you see, you know, right? Like, I just like seeing that variety a little more. And I, I think, uh, and I think there's bad, there's probably more examples of that. And I, and I, I think to an extent, D and D itself has has started. Fifth edition really has started um, cr- creating a lot of really nice. Uh, varieties when it comes to uh, just the way that humanoid figures and creatures look. I do want to do Jason what you're saying though, super needy and desperate for the players to stay with her. I like that a lot. I really want to create um, a an RP scenario that can devolve into combat as she gets more and more like, no, please stay with me and chat forever because she doesn't really. She's kind of. You know, presumably been alone for two thousand years, um, and maybe she can tease the fact that I, I really don't know if I want to even mention the drow. I think about it like, do I just want to ignore that? And the problem is the drow make an appearance in Etherin so it gets kind of weird about do I if I stick to my guns on ignoring the gra- on, on the drow? Do I then have to fix all the stuff where the drow appear? Or do I just, is it one of those things where like, oh yeah, you guys just never found the drow in the caves, and now you'll have to discover that. But then that's something I think she would know about. Yeah, she mentions that it's one of her bullet points. Uh, the dark, these three dark elves have passed through the Dryad's Grove on multiple occasions, coming and going through the south, e- west and southeast passages. Ethelwyn hasn't spoken to them out of fear that they might harm her. Which is very weird, given how needy she is. I feel like she would have tried to um, converse with them if she is that needy. And once um, the conversation, so maybe they tried to harm her or something, and she backed off, and or maybe she tried to attack them. I don't. I don't know. I feel like that's not that's incongruous with how lonely and hungers for conversation and companionship. Even though she's her fear is greater than her hunger for companionship. Strange one-eyed creatures lurk in the cave far to the south. They follow the dark elves up from below after their last foray down the southeast passage. I guess I need to read more about how the... Is there more about that in the drow section? But uh, what I'd like to do is maybe even less... Maybe not even have the drow here, but just... Maybe I could put some dead drow in here. Like they ran to the cave and the Nothics ate them and then maybe as she's mentioning them have the players and if the players are making a lot of sound i feel like the Gothics would just attack in here i really want to treat them as more just kind of they've lost their mind they're just really creepy creatures even though they've got enough intelligence Do Gothics speak i feel like i've looked this up before
1: where are the drowned ether i don't remember that well i don't think they're alive uh they do speak Undercommon. that's weird mainly found in the Underdark? Like, I, I know, maybe it's just
0: the Towers of Magic that do it, but I know at least in one of the Towers of Magic, um, one of the, there's like a drow body in there, so it goes to show that, like, they tried to, like, loot something or somewhere, and, but maybe that's that that designer trying to include the drow in Ethernet, maybe they're not actually in the base game
1: book, that could be possible. But I know they're in the Expanded Towers section. Yeah, I was still looking for if there's a garden thing. House of the Arcane... The
0: school where they can drink from a goblet and gain another charm is very similar to the pair. Uh The library with their conoloth and the weird giant blind albino penguin has been awakened.
1: Uh, I'm still not sure to wrap my head around that one. Why would they want to rescue this penguin? Artifacts <laughs> <laughs> from the Aetherin lore table. Okay, so you can learn some useful information from there, I guess. Might have to... I I don't know.
0: An Arconoloth clearly wouldn't be a a match for the players in combat. So I feel like it would have to have some... If you want to make this a legitimate combat fight. Or maybe it's not really meant to be one. The CR-12. I mean, it's pretty strong, but it's only
1: one creature. Ooh, she's got finger of death, though. That could be nasty. I guess I'm a big fan of those, like, fuck you, you're dead spells. Uh, Arboretum. Okay, there's a...
0: So, if I'm smart, I'd tie this into... This feels like this would be part
1: of the Arboretum. What does the Arboretum look like on the map? The Necropolis. By 10. Oh, yeah. Clearly visible on the map. Also, could be one of the first places they go. Canopy
0: of golden leaves crowns the trees inside a sunken basin. The trees grow in stark contrast to their bleak surroundings. Their branches swing, even though the air is deathly still. grove is nestled in a hollow in the city floor. Vents spaced around its perimeter. Wall emit puffy gray vapor which rises above the treetops and disperses as rain. Illusory hemisphere above the arboretum projects a false sky. Now malfunctioning, the vista flickers between a wild storm and a vast field of stars. Uh, the nether oak was at the heart of the arboretum. For centuries, netherese mages crafted their wands and staffs from the wood of
1: this oak. Which I think they have to go there uh, as part of the rite, the arcane octad.
0: nether uses the tree and stat block. When the characters arrive, the nether oak is in deep slumber. To complete the rite of the arcane octad, they must craft a wand from the wood of this tree. Nethering wand without waking the tree requires excess, a successful DC 20 dex stealth check
1: it apart with some of its wood with a DC 15 charisma check. ...attacks four needle blights spring from the ground to assist it acting on the same initiative count. Interesting. It doesn't explicitly say in the book... Yeah, it is in Transmutation. But that's... That's from the Expanded Towers of Magic. I I don't know if that's actually from the original book. So it's possible that they... Unless it's an Encounter. Is it an Encounter? Tomb, Tapper, Bigby's Hand, uh, Cold Fanatics, if
0: Avarice is an Aetherin, Spinning Mimic, Cold Light Walker, if and is an Aetherin, Gargoyles, Frost Giant, Skelet, Winter Majin, Nothics... Oh, it does, it does say they speak Leros instead of Common? okay. I, I'm glad they said that because I was confused.
1: And weirdly you can just meet the boss as a random encounter and that's kind of fucked up. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's possible the Drow... Mentioned in the book. I don't know how far.
0: Um I'll have to go back to that section. I don't think they've they were supposed to have ever made it very
1: far. I think they were waiting for like a bigger team to come. What number's the Drow at Drow outposts. Uh he intends to launch a full blown exploration into the ruins
0: of Ethrin while he and his fellow Drow discovered a few weeks ago. The Drow entered the caves of hunger with scaling Rimras, tunnel that connects connecting Underdark. Uh, Elizabeth has asked the matron mother of his house to send reinforcements, but they are weeks away. So I guess it doesn't technically say how far they've made it in Etherin. It sounds like they're ma- they've discovered the city is there, but maybe they haven't actually gone there that much. Although then the Dryad mentions the fact that they've been going back and forth, so it's unfortunate the book never really uh, clearly spells out, like, how far they've made it or what they've done. Just leaves that up to the DM to figure out... So if I'm smart, I would actually look ahead and, and try to tie this in. Like if she was a part of Aethrin, would she have been in this Arboretum? Although it doesn't look like on the map that like a piece of the Arboretum got ripped apart. Maybe she was inside of a building, so maybe it was a different area. Yeah, that would be a fun tease for her to be able to talk about. Triant. I could also give her abilities similar of that where she could summon like needle blights or something. Although, that's that's not gonna be worth a combat encounter. I have to use like the strongest version of the Blights. Or or use some Awakened Tree stat blocks or do something to turn her into a fun little uh, boss fight.
1: Tree Blight and Curse of Strahd. Fine Blight, I think is the slightly stronger version. Or one half. I guess Twig Blight is actually, the, right? It's Needle Blight and then Twig Blight? No twig blight's the smallest one. Cr one eight. Needle blight is the next one up. No your blights. That one fourth, which have really no abilities that make it worth running whatsoever against a high powered party.
0: I guess you could always do the minion combat. Be like, oh, they die in one hit, but also like offense wise, they're hardly worth caring about. (laughs) What if I just search tree? On a lot is more about at it. Yeah, I think it's more of a social scene. The library is also completely skippable, even though the library seems like an obvious place to go to in a lost city. I am wishing we had a wizard on the team because there's a lot of cool stuff for wizards to know about and learn about. Although credit to Raymond for uh definitely role-playing Edmund, like a very knowledge hungry, um knowledge seeking character, so that certainly helps. But it's a shame because like there's literally like one of the like a couple of the big loot things are like, oh you get a spell book with all these cool like ancient spells in it. And I think only a Wizard's gonna give a shit about that. Could use like awakened tree stats. Like maybe the maybe you could do some kind of layer action for the dryad.
1: Oh you know what I could do, Eric? You could look up home field advantage on Dryad and see if there's anything there. That might be a useful thing to do. B dry included in here. Dryad on page eighty one. Eighty one, we're only in the D's. Good lord, I forgot how big of a book this is. The magic has flowed through to the trees
0: around her lair, and if the dried is attacked, the force itself might come to her aid. Yes, that's what I was thinking. I'm reading from the Home Field Advantage book. Unless they are a special type of tree, such as a ant, these trees have 59 hit points, armor class of 13, vulnerability to fire damage, plus 2 to con saving throws made to maintain concentration on a spell. They cannot take any actions or move, unless made to do so by a lair action. So is that supposed to help her tree stride ability, because she can go in and out of trees? I can use 10 feet of movement to step magically into one dead tree within her tree. I'll have to change that and emerge from a second dead tree within 60 feet of the first tree. Space. That doesn't mean she can disappear. that just means she can walk between them though. Vine lore does sound familiar, i have to look that one up. Alright, layer actions for a Dryad. The Dryad summons a fae Spirit to assist her. The fae Spirit takes on the appearance and uses the stat block of a boar, elk, or giant badger.
1: Uh, I don't really like that one. Some animal seems great for a Dryad, but in this case, I don't think it would necessarily work. Uh, Number two,
0: the tree bound to the Dryad uses its natural magic to enhance her abilities. The tree casts the spell Bless on the Dryad, maintaining concentration so she doesn't have to. Uh, That's kind of interesting. Dryad channels Fae Power through her lair, enchanting the area using the spell Hallow. The Dryad can only choose to use the Courage, Daylight, Energy Protection, Everlasting, Rest, or Tongues effect of the Hallow spell. I'm not familiar with the Hallow spell trees in the region channel magic through their leaves and cast the spell Gust of Wind. Maintain the concentration on the spell so the Dryad doesn't have to. That one uses the trees. I wasn't going to use the trees as like melee. Like they can use like slams or entangles and things. This one uses it more of like spells. Which is an interesting idea. I think blessing the Dryad would help though. Because I actually want to use the Dryad as a... Mainly because I want to use the Dryad as the spellcaster. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Use the Awakened Trees. Um, using that Duskthorn Dryad stat block, I can have her be the spellcaster, so she could actually cast spells like Wall of Thorns, uh, Counterspell, Entangle. All those are concentration, and then just Magic Missiles She could just shoot, and I could flavor that as, like, Thorns shooting out, basically. Uh, peppering them. And then at the same time, you could have, uh, the, the bad thing is they would just be focus firing her, so if I don't have literal Awakened Trees with, like, hit points and stuff, She's gonna go down really quick, even if she's got legendary actions like of these trees activating and slamming and attacking, but maybe that part of it. Maybe you don't wanna have it last too terribly long. She instantly like, cries out and like retreats into her tree, and players have to feel morally conflicted.
1: Yeah, I could use I could just use a slam attack right here. Something she could do as like a legendary action or a player action. But I might spawn some. Blights or something. Or what was it, was the it one you said? The Vine Lord? I'm gonna search a Vine. Throw an assassin vine in there and instantly make it a lot harder. Those things are crazy. There's also a Vine Golem, but I think that one's a lot stronger.
0: We are seven for the Vine Lord. This is I need more of a minion though. The blights would be more I I could always take a blight and like scale it up a little bit.
1: Or maybe use like awakened tree, but it's really an awakened bush. Isn't that something you can do? Like smaller
0: or a shrub? Okay, <laughs> it's an awakened shrub. It's an ordinary shrub. Okay, it's it's laughably terrible. It's break. Hey, you know what? Fucking that gonna hurt. Like, give me an awakened rose bush, cause that shit is painful. We've got a freaking rose bush out front that's now. Dangerously close to where we get into our cars, and it's really annoying to walk past that thing. But I like the idea of, of turning what could be a social scene into a possible common encounter. There you go, you could throw the rotten fruit at the players. That'd be pretty fun. Uh, those purple pears. No purple pears, no more pears for you. I feel like I should I sh- I need to figure out where in etherin she is and how much information she knows. It would obviously be. Better for me that she doesn't know very much. Um, but it's, we don't want to make her completely of a useless social scene either. And I, th- I really worry about telling the players about the drow as, as a way for... It's, it's almost like the DM saying, Hey, you need to go talk to these drow and check them out. Which maybe they I mean, that's not the end of the world. They can. I just feel bad about like pointing out this thing that I could otherwise completely skip. Because they can completely skip it and like, hey, it doesn't, you know, we've got so much going on, we don't need to do this whole drow element. So honestly, I'm still on the fence of whether or not to include them or not. I don't think it would be that hard to just ignore them completely. The only difference is why have Nothics come up other than they've just, um, you know, I don't know, maybe the way to, maybe they just sense that the Caves of Hunger have opened up because I think the Nothics coming up is supposed to have been pretty recent. Um Although, why wouldn't why wouldn't the creatures... I mean, if the path... Because the, the way opened up was always the end of the Caves of Hunger, whereas Caves of Hunger has always been, as far as I know, connected to Aetherin. So, more creatures could have come up from Aetherin. But maybe it's because the Mythalar got reactivated a few weeks ago, or months ago, whatever it's been for me. And uh, so maybe that's driving more of the creatures away from Aetherin because Aetherin itself is becoming so much more dangerous... And maybe that's why um, only recent... And maybe that's a piece of information she can give that, is even though she's kind of fuzzy on the time, she goes, it just feels like recently these um, terrible creatures have
1: come up, and um, they they don't seem to make sense. Um, I'm afraid of them. You
0: know, it would definitely play up like the fear angle of what's going on in there. We have the four classes to choose from. Fighter, Cleric, Wizard, and Thief. The classics... There's something to be said about games that make you start as, like, a basic, basic-ass class like that, and then you expand into the more, like, interesting um, sub um uh, specialized classes. And, and D&D does this to an extent, but they still have you choose from, like, 11 or something at the beginning, and then you can specialize from there. But you could even go further in another game system and say, no, you have to start as, like, one of these basic-ass archetypes, see how you feel about that, and then you can further specialize into this, and then you can further specialize into this. I guess the problem is it makes low levels all start very, very uh, similar uh, to each other at the beginning, but I always think it's very tricky, especially in, like, um, what is it, Pathfinder that has, like, 30 classes or something. Like, you make people make these huge choices right at the beginning when they really don't know, you know, unless unless you've already played a bunch of these classes and have that experience, like, how those things play out. Problem with a lot of RPGs, I feel like, where they have this class-based system. And it's something to be said for the skill-based system, like an Elder Scrolls game, that uh, you don't have to make those big choices. You can just, you know, create your class, and or create your character, and then just play around with whatever skills, and then you end up just be, being better at whatever skills you end up doing. Anyway, I could go off on all these different cool rants with you folks, so I enjoy it very much, but I think that is definitely going to do it for this week's Crafting Icewind Dale. If you enjoy the content, please, or this Thursday edition. Uh, please do check out Patreon.com slash RogueWatson. Shouts to Platinum Patrons. Joe, Will, Thomas, Stan, William, Brandon, Genocider, David, Eclectic, Role, Play, Role, Christopher, Bryant, William, David, Corey, Go at 1337, Matthew, Big Nut, John, John, Infernis, Chris, Scott, and Gene, and Gold Patrons, RPG, Papercrafts, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcus, Dead Lizard, Lion, Sam, Lumpy, Spuds, Jerome, Nathan, Fast, Licata, Scott, Refus, Corey, and William. Thank you all very much for your support. If you are a Platinum Patron, please do sign up for our second uh, January game. You'll need to sign up by Friday evening. The game will be next week. Uh, For the rest of you, I will see you all for D&D tomorrow night.